Romans. So today will be kind of the, the last ascending piece uh, here in Paul's explanation of justification. And, and as we're going to see next week, next week kind of the entire thing culminates. So everything we've been going through, all the really hard passages, they kind of culminate at the end of chapter 3 by giving us just absolutely amazing hope. Something to just be, this is so awesome, this is exciting. It ends at hope. But the focus today is actually going to be on the mission of God. But even more specifically than just the mission of God, we're going to talk today about some things that get in the way of that mission. And the bigger point of how God ultimately is going to achieve what he always said that he would achieve. So the big issue that Paul's kind of been working through in his letter so far from the very beginning is the fact that God gave man everything. He gave us everything. He intended great things for us. He created great things for us. He, his plans for us are far and beyond anything that we could ever hope or imagine or even dream up. Yet from the beginning of time, we have tried to make our own way. From the very beginning of time, we've lived our lives kind of convinced that we can do it better. Now, of course, I know that there's nobody in this room who would raise their hand and be like, I can do it better than God. At least I, I hope there's not. Like, I'm most likely, I don't think that any of you would just be like, dude, I can do it better. I don't, you know. But the way that a lot of us, including myself, the way that all of us live our lives at different times really do tell a different story. They really do tell a story of, hey, you know what? I think I can do this better than God. But Paul uses a very specific word in verse 9 of chapter 3. And believe it or not, uh, through all of the things that we've walked through already in this very loaded letter, chapter 3, verse 9 is really the first time that Paul uses this word. He uses kind of a variation of it in 2.12. But in 3.9 is the first time that we get the Greek word harmartia, which is the word sin, the English word sin. In, in 2.12, Paul says, all who have sinned under the law. So he, he gives, a, it's like a variation of it, but it's a lot different in 3.9 because in 3.9, it's not just a picture of something that maybe somebody has done or you have done. It's actually a picture of something that we are under. What is described in 3.9 is sin as a power that actually controls us and sets our lives off, of, off track. Which, to me, that is not something to take lightly at all. Again, it took him a long time to get to that, but he's there now, and it's not something to take lightly. But sin often begins, we've, we've talked kind of how this happens a lot, it begins in your mind, and it often begins with things that we think is okay, it would be okay to take that lightly. It'd, it'd be okay to take this one thing lightly, and then it leads to this, and then leads to this, and then leads to this. See, sin is any time you choose something, other than God. It literally means to miss the mark. Uh, it's the concept of a, a person missing the mark. God has a clear path for you to walk, and you veer from that path. He has a clear target that you're supposed to aim for, and you just don't miss it. You veer from the path, you miss the mark, you choose something that's different from God. And of course, there are a lot of different ways that that looks. We've talked through that uh, multiple times throughout this series, we talked about transgression and iniquity. Transgression is, of course, a breaking of a trust. It is an outward action in which you actually uh, follow through with whatever it is that is in your heart to do against someone. And iniquity is something that begins in your mind. We looked at the uh, Hebrew word picture for iniquity that says that whatever your eye hooks to multiplies. 
But like we learned as we were studying chapter one, sin is not actually the root of the problem. Sin is actually the result of a bigger problem. The bigger problem is ungodliness. Sin is the result of us believing that we can remove God from our lives and still be fine. That we can remove God from our lives and then still make decisions all by ourselves and that we're just going to be fine. So the thing that I know we've been building and building and building on this thing for quite a while. This is the 11th message in in this sermon series already. But today, Paul actually reaches the furthest, most extreme part of the entire argument. He will return to that courtroom setting uh, that he laid out for us in chapter 2, which we went over, in which that day will come in which God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. And Paul, here, he actually paints the clearest picture anywhere that all people, no matter who you are, no matter what you've accomplished, all people are guilty. And all people who think that they're going to be able to stand before God on account of the things that they've done, on account of the things that they've achieved, on a, their accomplishments, their merits, uh, their, whatever it might be, their works, all who stand on their own merit will be condemned. Paul leaves no room in this passage for there being any possibility of anyone achieving salvation apart from Jesus Christ. That is very, very clear in this passage. And we need to make that very clear. And we're going to continue to make that clear throughout this message because it does matter. Sin matters. The corruption that has been, that has been destroying our world for centuries, that matters. Repenting of our sins and believing that we cannot save ourselves, that is very, very important and we're going to keep returning to it. But there is another sort of underlying idea in this passage that we must get our heads around besides just the fact that we're all guilty. Because there is a gospel hope that is woven into these dark passages of Scripture and that gospel hope actually is you. And that gospel hope actually is me. It is us. It is the body of Christ. So let's read the first uh, half of chapter 3 together. This is Romans 3, 1 through 20. Uh, yesterday, not yesterday, last week, Pastor Austin did just a fantastic job of laying a foundation for this. He went through verse 8. I'm going to read all that again, and I'm going to go back to a couple parts in that because it's very crucial to, what, to where we're going with the second half of it. Uh, but uh, I want to set a framework for you, but but I'm going to get a little less into that part than what he did last week. So we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 3. Um, it says this, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in, any way, in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? 
Why not do evil though good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. I'm going to pause here for a second. We're going to keep reading in a moment. But first, I want to look back at the, uh, fir- the first half of this when it says uh, there's one particular part that is very, very significant. And it's extremely important that we note this, uh, what he says about the Jews, the people of God, the chosen people at that time. That's, they're the, they're the, at that point, a Jew is, uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're a Gentile, you're not a Jew. That's it's everybody besides Jews. Um, are Gentiles. So there's Jews and there's Gentiles. But there's a very, very key to understanding this verse. And a lot of people don't understand this, this, this verse about what if some are unfaithful, right? What if God, what if, if we're unfaithful in our lives and God's still faithful? It's actually a very, very big idea here. See, this is what you need to understand about the Jews. He says here that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, most of us kind of separate that from the rest of this passage and you can't do it. So he says you're entrusted with the oracles of God. What that means is they were given the revelation of God, the the Bible, the the scriptures, but also the revelation of what God's doing in the world and what he he wants to do through them. They were given the revelation of who he is and what he intends to do with humanity. But if you are entrusted with something, that does not mean that it is something that you are given just to hang on to. To be entrusted to something does not mean, hey, this is for you. I mean, it is for you, but it is beyond that. It means that you're given something with a mission that goes along with it. That is what it means to be entrusted. The Jews, what this is saying, and this is just by order of how it happened um, um, time, on a timeline, literally the Jews were the first ones to receive the revelation of God. They were given they were given the revelation, but they were given it in order that they may then be messengers of that revelation of God to the rest of the world. Carriers of the gospel, carriers of hope. Entrusted here is actually the same word that we get in 2 Corinthians 5, which is our church's theme verse, when it says, you have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. We've not been, that's not saying you've been reconciled. You have been reconciled. That's just saying your job is to be a part of reconciling the world. We've been given the job of making sure others are reconciled. But watch this, because I want to show you this connection, okay? The, the Greek word for the word entrusted is the word pistuo. Pistuo. It comes from the word faithfulness. Entrusted means that you are faithful with something, Okay? Trusted to be faithful. But now watch this. Verse 2 and 3 says this. To begin with, the Jews were pistuo with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the oracles. But what if some were unfaithful? What if some were apisteo? What if some were unfaithful to deliver the oracles? Apisteo is a word that is often used to describe someone who betrays a trust. What if the Jews betray God's trust and they don't share this news with the world. Does their apostia, their faithlessness, nullify the pistis, the faithfulness of God? This is all one idea. And what it's trying to say is actually incredibly simple. The message is going to go out whether the Jews are faithful to it or they're not. The message that the Jews were entrusted with, the message that God gave them and had faith in them that they they can do it even if they fail, God still won't fail. 
The world is going to ultimately be reconciled back to God. God is going to do what he is going to do, whether you're faithful to the ministry or not. Whether, whether I'm faithful to do what God told me to do or I'm not, God is still going to be God. Detroit is going to continue to see better days whether we do what we're supposed to do or not. Whether we hide in our closets or we lock ourselves in this room and we never go out there at all or we actually show up and help make the world a better place. God is going to do what God is going to do. And one thing that I love about what Paul gets into in these next couple of verses, this is so amazing, is he actually, because he gets into a really crazy list in a minute, we'll get into it in a second, is he shows us that not only is God going to put the world back together, but he is going to put the world back together with some of, some of the most broken people you could possibly imagine. So the next time you feel like God cannot use you because of what you've done, just know this. God writes, I've, told, I've said this so many times, God writes all his best stories with the most broken of people. All of them. There, there are no perfect people besides Jesus. And Jesus came onto the scene and he calls out the outcast, the marginalized, the broken. He, he calls out the lowlifes to the highest calling in life. It says, come follow me, be my disciples. Paul himself, dude, Paul's such a mess. We talked about it at the very beginning of this series. Do not let the devil tell you that you can't do something because at some point in your life you did something. I don't care if it was yesterday. I don't care if it was this morning. Jesus is in the business of reconciliation and so is his church. But it is also very clear that along with that and with the church being reconciled, the church does have a mission. There's something that the Jews were entrusted with and there's something that you and I are entrusted with. So let's continue on and let's look at the type of people that God entrusts this message to. If you would follow along with me on the screen or in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already been, or we, for we have already charged um, that, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All right, just to lighten it up a little bit, let's tell a story. We just got back from a trip and we have a lot of them. <laughs> a lot of them. So last week our family went on a very odd adventure. Uh, we, it was kind of a half working trip and a half, ha, half vacation. We camped a lot. 
lot, but we also met with several churches about like the possibility of people sending missions teams up um, like to come do mission trips in Detroit and things like that. Uh, so we left Michigan and our first Florida destination, we were trying to go to Florida, was, the, was Melbourne Beach, Florida. And the reason we were trying to go there is we have friends from Los Angeles who had planted a church there and it's been doing amazing. And we'd never, we hadn't been there yet and we wanted to go see the work that God was doing there. He's doing amazing work there. We were so excited to visit it. And we wanted to go on a Sunday morning to actually like experience it um, and, and just celebrate with our friends. But along the way, we had a very random mission. So our car's already just totally packed to the brim full of our camping gear. I mean, we have four kids. We have just like a SUV type thing. Um, so food, all of it, clothes, suitcases, the whole thing. And our friend J.P. Dorsey, who uh, you guys know him, he came and he spoke, uh, he spoke in July. Uh, and he's speaking again in October, again, so we're going to bring him back. I'm very excited about it. Fascinating person, and you'll, you'll see why even more so here. He had a very random request from Don and I. He's like, hey, uh, he had a request for somebody who would do it, and Don and I were willing to do it. We were already going south, and he said, hey, could you please come to Grand Rapids, pick up something for me? Actually, he offered to meet us, but we just decided to, to go there. Um, pick up something and drop off an item in Nashville. So we picked up this package in Grand Rapids and then headed to Nashville uh, the next day. Now, the item that he needed delivered, he did not trust with UPS or FedEx. I'm sorry, Michael. They didn't, he didn't trust it with that. But for some reason, he trusted it with a family with four tiny kids and a car already full of stuff. And they're crazy kids. Now, what it was, was it was the fireplace mantle from the study of J.R.R. Tolkien from his house in Oxford. It was this large, heavy piece of furniture from his Oxford home that Tolkien would have sat next to while he was do, writing and doing much of his work. Uh, for those of you who don't know who that is, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy and several other um, amazing books uh, that some of them were turned into movies. Uh, and uh, anyway, I, I don't know, I, I know that what I'm about to show you next is definitely hyperbole. It wasn't meant, it's, not, it's just meant to show you this. I don't know what the actual price was that he sold this for, but I looked this up and a couple of years ago, there was a couple of blogs about how this was for sale and people on this website were saying, hey, you can buy his fireplace mantle for only $250,000. Again, I know that this is not what he, he did sell it for, but this is a big deal. Like people who care about this stuff, this is like a Tolkien website, the one ring, I, you know, and then this is another one too. So there's all these like ads about this. So uh, it didn't, it's obvious, like I know that it didn't go for that, but it is very obvious that this item that was entrusted to us was something of value. It's a very big item, but it was huge. I would show you like the scope of like the kids and how crazy it was, but you can't see around the fireplace mantle. So in the, that's how, you just can't see around it, right? But to try to make this fun for the kids, to try to make it like, hey, this is doable. What we did was we bought the audiobook of The Hobbit. And we, and we listened throughout the journey to this story being told, and we tried to get our kids to like envision uh, you know, him like sitting next to this mantle and writing the words that were being read to them in this very moment. But it was very crowded. Now, that sounds like a good story. And it is a good story. It's one of those stories that I really hope that like my kids tell their kids uh, someday as they're reading them the Lord of the Rings and these stories that by then would just be considered completely, completely ancient. 
But the reality is, is with this fireplace mantle on top of everything else in our car, the entire time our kids were extremely anxious. You would be too. They were overwhelmed by how crammed they all were all the way to Nashville. They were not exactly happy about this mission that we were on. We woke up in the morning, right? We woke up in the morning, we loaded the car, and we had plans to get to Nashville at like 5 p.m. But then in Lansing, due to a series of unfortunate events, we actually didn't leave town until like 1 p.m. So we actually delivered the thing to the poor buyer at like midnight. And then this is what we did. We, when we got to Nashville, we pulled into Nashville and we went and how we did it was we dropped our kids off at our friend's house, Kenny and Deborah. Kenny also came and spoke here last uh, uh, October. They were in, uh, so good friends of ours, you've met him. Uh, so Kenny spoke here last year. So we went to their house, we dropped off the kids, we unloaded the kids, the car seats, the 50 items that surrounded the fireplace mantle so that we wouldn't show up like we were like on some crazy trip, but we were actually, you know, just trying to deliver this mantle. Right? And as we were unloading all this stuff, Dawn somehow slices her finger on this piece of glass in their garage. And it was just blood, just like, phew, I mean, there was a lot of blood. In fact, it kept opening and opening and opening the entire trip. So finally, we deliver the fireplace mantle. And when we get there, this thing's heavy. We said, our hands are in the, you guys can take it from here. It took five grown men to carry it into the house that it was going. I think it made it in one piece, though. It was, it was in a box by the time we got it there, but... Okay, so from there, right, we went back to Kenny's house. And Kenny and Deborah, just because of the type of people that they are, they gave us their bedroom. They say, hey, you guys sleep in the master bedroom. So we go in their ba master bedroom, and we get in there, and they're like the type of people who have way too many pills on their bed. Okay, so Dad and I get out of their bed and we take these pills and we throw them on the floor because we don't want them, we'll put them back later on. And one lands like right there next to the, the baby was sleeping in this like little camping tent thing that she's in because it was easier than a pack and play. So she's sleeping in this thing, right? And then uh, our thought was, okay, we'll wake up really early in the morning and we're going to take off. We'll get to Melbourne. It's like an 11 hour drive. We'll get there in the evening and get some rest and then go to church in the morning. That was the plan, back to Melbourne. So in the morning, we woke up, we were ready to go, but the problem was the baby had woken up before us, and she was wandering around the house, and her diaper was so full that it was leaking everywhere, everywhere, all over where she had slept. When she ex exited her sleeping thing, she plopped down on their pillows, and it soaked all the way through. Like, they had like five layers, and it soaked through every single one of them down to the pillow. Every layer. Now, we had a very, very big mess to clean up. So we went downstairs to their washer and dryer, and th their daughter Kayla was doing laundry at the time. And so, actually, she, was, she had done it the night before, so she went to move it for us, and there was like a little E sign on the, um, on the laundry, the washing machine. And she's like, I've never seen that before. It doesn't seem to be working. So she's like, hey, yeah, let me finish the load, but it wouldn't finish. It kept giving her the sign. So then we tried to fix it, and it turns out their, their washing machine that had always worked every single time before was, was broken this time. It wasn't going to work. We spent like an hour working on it. So we had to go to the laundromat, which they don't actually live in the city in Nashville, and a laundromat is like, what, it was 35 minutes away it took us to get to this laundromat. So we went back, we, we did the laundry. Now, Kenny and Deborah weren't there at the time. Uh, if they would have been, they would have been like, hey, just leave the stuff. But I'm glad they weren't because we wanted to take care of it for them. They, so they weren't like, go wash our pillows. That's not them at all. We just were like, okay, we got to make this right. 
Okay, so we do laundry 35 minutes away. We come back, uh, load up our stuff, and finally we leave heading toward Florida. At 4 p.m., we leave Nashville. <laughs> Driving, and we're like, okay, now we have to drive all the way through the night if we're going to make it to this morning service, right? That would have been no problem if we'd left at 8 a.m., but leaving at 4 p.m., it's a little bit of a problem. So suddenly, our mission became a lot more difficult. The night became a long night. We had to drive a lot. But our destination never changed. We were always going to Melbourne. We would eventually get to Melbourne. And when we got there, we arrived exhausted, smelly, not put together at all. Uh, just a few minutes, literally, before the service had started, but we arrived nonetheless. All just to take a picture with our friends to prove that we were there. Isn't that why we travel? So we can take pictures to prove that we've been to these places? So good to see our friends Anthony and Brooke. So now, here's, here's the reality. Okay, we had a mission. We were entrusted with something that I think was pretty important. We had a destination. And a lot of the things along the way did not go the way that we had originally intended or planned on them to go, but in the end, it did all come together. And in a somewhat related way to that story that I just told you, the reality is God has given his people, you and me, and in, in the case of the book of Romans, specifically the people of Israel, he's given them a very clear mission, a very clear mission, to reconcile the world back to Messiah. But that mission does not go as planned because of this thing called sin that keeps getting in the way, right? It's diapers that leak. It's kids that are overwhelmed by the job you're asking me to do. This is a really big job. There's a lot of stuff in the car. There's a lot of weight to carry. I don't know that I can handle this. Having difficulty actually going along with the process that's being laid out. The mission never changes. What God is doing never changes changes. But the people who God has called to do the mission have complicated the process by letting our own lives and our own desires get in the way of the bigger picture of what God is doing in our world. In fact, the only reason that God even had to give them that mission in the first place was because they got off track from the very beginning, right? The first mission is just be fruitful and multiply. And really, that's still the mission. If we can just keep doing this, then we're going to be doing all right. But God created the world, and God created the world perfectly, and he gave us a very specific way to live in it. And from the very beginning, we've been saying, hey, I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it my own way. I just want to be very, very clear about this as we, as we look at this passage, because I'm going to not spend too much time on the depth of all of these texts that Paul gets into here, but the passage is about sin. The passage is about the way that sin has put the Jews off course, but ultimately it is how sin has put everyone off course. Tim Keller, actually, about this, this set of scriptures, starting in 9, 9 through 20, he says that this passage is perhaps the most radical, strongest of all statements that the Bible gives us about what's wrong with the human heart. He identifies this passage as literally being a biblical summary of the doctrine of sin, which, like we said earlier, sin is what is a result of removing God from our lives. But that result, right, sin— creates roadblocks that stand in the way of mission and stand between us and God. And the key to Paul's argument here is this word everyone. Everyone. Everyone is under this. It's, it's written in a way where the, this thing called sin 
it literally is weighing us down. It's holding us down. It's looming over us, and we're under it. It has power that needs to be broken. All of us. But to understand this, it's very, very important that we look at this passage within the flow of thought that begins in chapter 1 and really continues all the way to where we are right now and will culminate next week. Because there's a very, very significant shift in the language that Paul uses in chapter 1 to chapter 2, and then it shifts again here in 3.9. See, in chapter 1, it's when we get the scary list of like all these crazy sins that people who aren't like us would commit. Right now, I say that, I say that very sarcastically because we're all on that list, but that is the way the Jews would have heard that list as it's being read. They'd be like, okay, those are the things we don't do, okay? And Paul uses a very specific word through that language in 118 through 32, and that word is they. They did not honor God. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God. They know God's righteous decree and don't do them. They gave, uh, God gave them up, and they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. But in chapter two, it shifts, he says it in 2 1. He says, Therefore, you. You have no excuse, any one of you who judge. Do you suppose, you who judges, that you will escape judgment? Because your hard heart, you are storing up wrath in the day of wrath. You preaching and stealing. Do you steal? Now, look down in your Romans journals and in your Bibles and see what he says here in 3 9. He says, What? Are we Jews? any better off? No, not at all. We're not any better off. See, Romans chapter 1 through 3 builds before finally landing in this place where Paul himself, the most dedicated follower of Jesus you can even imagine, lumps himself into a category with all the rest of humanity, saying we're all under sin. Then what he does is he quotes several passages from the Old Testament that actually back up his claim. And the reason that this section in the Old, that when he quotes that, is so important is because what Paul's doing is he's using the Hebrew scriptures, he's using their very own code of law and ethics to show the Jews the we, as he puts it, were no better. But beyond that, it also shows the Jews how his gospel, as he calls it in Romans 1, his gospel is actually very consistent with their gospel. His gospel is very consistent with what they've always known. So he begins by quoting Psalm 14, 1 through 3. He says, no one is righteous. They don't understand. They don't get it. They don't do good. No one seeks God. No one cares. Again, it's not so much a direct rebellion against the things that you're told as much as this kind of passive approach that says, I'm going to live the way that I want to live. It's really an echo of Romans 1, 18 when he says, well, when you remove God, that's also... You know, that's the result. Sin is the result of ungodliness and injustice. Then it gets into no one does good. Not you, not them, not us, any of us. If you were to put your good and your bad on a scale in hopes that one day you're, you know, when you're being judged and you put your good on one side, your bad on the other, hoping that when that day comes, your good is going to outweigh your bad, Paul says 100% of humanity will have those scales tip against them if that's what they do. It will not tip in your favor. Next, in his progression, he quotes Psalm uh, 5, 9, and he says, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Now, we've already, uh, in this series, we've talked about the power of tongue and how there's destruction in the life, uh, there's life and death and the power of the tongue, destruction that can be caused through what you say. So I'm not going to get into all that right now, but Paul gives a very clear emphasis here 
Not only that our words have power and have the potential to destroy people's lives, but also that we use that power. And we actually, we actually destroy one another with the way that we speak. And he's saying we're all guilty. So first, there are people who don't do good. They don't seek God. Then they turn and become people who do evil with their lips. They destroy people's worlds with their words. And then in verse 15, Paul takes it even further. And he quotes Isaiah 59, 7. And he says, um, he says their feet are swift to shed blood. Now, if you look at this all closely and the way this progresses, you, you notice that what he, just like what he does in Romans 1, he, in Romans 1, he does it in his own words, but in Romans 3, he does it using other people's words, piecing together these ancient texts that s- still show us that same progression, that it really is true that whatever it is that your eye hooks to will multiply. It leads from not understanding something to eventually actually being the person who's causing destruction to another person. And then it lands in a place where it says there's no fear of God. We, we, don't, we, don't rev- we don't have reverence for God. We don't care about the things of God. We don't care about God and what he says to do or what God will do to us. And I want to encourage you in the way that this, this, I guess encouragement is probably the wrong word, but um, in the way that this sort of flows It's the subtle things that are almost always the ones that destroy us. Satan loves subtlety because it allows him to sort of creep into these areas of your lives that you don't even know you're supposed to be guarding him, him from. If he can get into your mind and you can take your mind off of Jesus and onto yourself, even if it's onto the good you've done or onto your merits or onto something you have accomplished or you're building, he's got you. If he can uh, take your, your mouth and take it off of praise to God and direct it towards speaking about other people, you don't even know you're in trouble, but you are. The pathway to destruction, it really is paved by people who, they don't even know that they're working for the wrong side. We, 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 we think we're just venting. Or we, we think we're just sharing with something as a way of coping. We sort of shelter our slander under this umbrella of this is spiritual or it's spirituality or it's um, or, or, or almost like, like you say, hey, pray for that person. They need prayer. Or even beyond that, this is what I, I've been guilty of this before. It's like, hey, I'm like a real like Jesus warrior, right? Because such and such did so, such and such did such and such a thing to me and I'm still going. I'm still fighting. I'm still doing this. I think it's easy to do that and you have to be very, very careful with your words and how you do that. Sometimes things that are true you, can, you can, still, can still be used as weapons against others that are very, very destructive. And it leads to destruction in your life and destruction in your community. And it actually causes you to work against God and what he's trying to cultivate in your midst. And we do it in so many ways. Now, I want us to look at the very last part of this passage. And then we're going to go back to a couple of things at the very beginning. Uh, and, then, and then we'll close. But a couple of weeks ago, we talked about judgment. And we talked about the scales in the courtroom, and I showed you this picture. And about, this is the scales of justice at the Supreme Court and how justice is determined by the way that the scales tip. And as the scales tip, so is the verdict. And we, we, we've been saying this, thank God, right, that for those of us who put our trust in Jesus, it will be Jesus on that scale being weighed. Well, Paul actually returns to that courtroom language here in verse 19 and 20, and it's actually incredibly powerful. This is what he says. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law 
so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since, look at this, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now what is it saying? This phrase that every mouth may be stopped is courtroom language. It is you determining I have nothing more to add to this case. It's you knowing everything I say can be used against me. So it's this concept of you, you put your hand over your mouth and you keep quiet. You don't try to plead your case because you know that your case, you know that you're guilty, you know your own guilt. And what Paul says here about the law, it's actually very important at this very end. Is this part about the law actually explains this part about your mouth. See, this is what the law does. The law shows you that you can't live up to it. The law's job is actually to show you that you can't keep it. That's why it exists. It's not an evil law. It's actually a perfect law that imperfect people will never be able to keep. And what the law is actually designed to do is to cause you to shut your mouth when it comes to your own case because the law in and of itself is evidence against you. You have no case because you have not kept it. The heart of justification, and this is so cool to me, justification essentially is destroyed when you try to build your own case. Your, your, own, your world will unravel when you start defending yourself and you think, hey, we said this over and over again. We said it like this. We said, if you stand alone, or if you stand on what you've done, you'll stand alone. And if you stand alone, you'll stand condemned. But if every mouth may be shut, because when they look at their lives against that perfect law that they know that they've never been able to keep, what that indicates is that you come to terms with the fact that you're guilty. And on your own, you're without hope. And when you close your mouth, catch this, when you close your mouth, it gives Jesus a chance to open his and make that declaration over you that we've been talking about this entire series. Because what does justification mean? It means God declares you to be righteous because of Jesus. But if you open your mouth and try to declare it yourself, he can't. But the thing that sort of makes this passage so unique is that in the middle of it, being probably this most, the most descriptive image that we get of sinful man and man's inability to save ourselves, buried in all that is a mission. A mission that God promised to fulfill through Israel's faithfulness. But unfortunately for the world, what? Israel was not faithful. They failed. They made a golden calf. They never kept the Sabbath years. They worshiped other gods. They gave themselves over to other cultures. They committed sins against each other, committed sins against God, committed sins against themselves. They made a mess of their lives. And it cost them greatly, generation after generation after generation. They were far from the Israel that God wanted them to be and intended them to be, just like you and I so often are far from the people who we know that God intends for us to be and God wants us to be. Babies poop. They do. Machines break. Mistakes are made. The journey rarely goes the way that we thought that it would because we're involved. We're a part of it. 
We're human. And like Paul says, all humans, no one is righteous. No one does what is good, and yet God still uses us. God always gets us to the destination. He always shows up whether we do or not. And he is reconciling the world back to God through the only Israelite who actually was faithful. And that's Jesus. We're going to find next week how everything culminates at Jesus. It's been building and building and building and it will culminate here. And all this language about sin and judgment and all the lists that everybody's on and all the guilt, it's all nailed to the cross with Jesus. Jesus took everything that we are, he let himself be crucified with it, and now we become all that he is, blameless before God. That's justification. Now think again about this. Think about the, this verse we looked at earlier. It's, the heart, it's one of the hearts of the whole letter. That even when we're not faithful, the faithfulness of Jesus, the son of David, the promise of Israel, he remains faithful. But that does not mean, and it cannot mean, that when we accept Jesus as our Savior, we just continue to live our lives however we want to live. Just thinking, oh, he'll be faithful. No, 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 no. That's why Romans 2 says, no, it's, it, God's kindness is meant to actually lead you to repentance, which means you change your mind and you actually change your life. We need to make Jesus Lord of our lives just as much as we need him to be Savior of our lives. And to me, that's actually really great news because when I look at the mirror and I see who I am without Christ, I'm pretty excited about the fact that, hey, if I make Jesus Lord, he's going to be making me more and more and more like Jesus every day because I need that. I believe with all of my heart that when Jesus comes into your life, your life will change. I believe with all of my heart that as followers of Jesus, though God kind of does a lot of that for you, there is still an intention that we must shape our lives around for doing the right thing. See, a transformed life is a testimony for Jesus that will lead others toward him. But a life that stays the same is just a case for why not to follow Jesus. If you stay the exact same and everybody sees that, they say, that's no different. What do I need that for? What you do matters. But don't you dare think for a second that what you do will save you. It won't. And on that day, may your mouth be silenced. Because you know that it is by grace through faith. Now you have to catch this. It is by grace through faith that God would account to you as the person that Jesus is. But listen, we all love that verse, right? Ephesians 2.8. It's like what we are saved by grace through faith. But do you know what the Greek word for faith is? It's on the screen right now. It's this word right here. Pistis. No different word than faithfulness. There's not a faith and a faithfulness. There's just a faith, faithfulness. Being faithful to what Jesus has asked you to do is evidence of the saving grace of Jesus that it actually has a hold of your life. It's not that you're never going to fall. You're going to fall. But it's that you keep going. You know, we didn't turn around when we realized we weren't going to make it to Florida until, unless we drove all night. We knew it didn't go right. We knew there's a lot to do. But we kept going. And that's our lives. That's the gospel. We're going to screw up. We're going to have a hundred opportunities to give up and to just say, man, forget this. I choose something else. But the faithful people, the ones who have faith in Jesus, they understand that God is worth the work of picking yourself back up and fighting for what's right, tearing down what's keeping you from being who you should be in Christ and keep going, keep going, keep fighting the urge to do the things that you know will knock you off track. 
one last thing I have to share with you because it just totally brings us together. We know from this passage and from so many other passages that we're going to screw up. I'm going to screw up. I, I do it all the time. We're going to be unfaithful. And we know that in those moments, God does remain faithful because he's God and he's not going to fail. If there's one mission in this entire world that I promise you is going to succeed, I can tell you, you can take it to the bank, you can, put the, you can mortgage the house on it. It's that God's mission is going to succeed. It will succeed. It's going to move forward whether I succeed or not, whether I go along with what he has for me or not. But this is proof, okay? Just after that part that he says about faithfulness, it says this, it says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Now you have to know where this comes from. He says, as it is written, you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What Paul is doing here is he is quoting Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is actually the, one of the most important Psalms in the entire Bible. It is a Psalm of David, right after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And it ultimately, that led to her pregnancy and ultimately the murder of her husband, Uriah. So David's jacked up at this point. And in this verse that Paul quotes, David is actually asking God, God, will you please forgive me? And this is what he says, forgive me so that you can be justified in your words. And you can be blameless in your judgment. He's saying, God, I know that you are so powerful, you can do anything you want. But I also know what you promised you'd do. I also know the promise that you made to me and the promise that was made to David was that from his seed was going to come the Messiah. From his seed was going to come one who, would, who was going to reign forever. And he says, God, I know that even though I didn't keep my end of the deal, I think you still will keep yours. David really postures himself here in a position of somebody who wants to change, but who knows he can't do that by himself. He knows he's an adulterer. He knows he's a murderer. But he says this in verse 7. You just got to go a little further. He says, but God, if you wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. I can live the life of a person who's washed clean. But first, I need you to wash me clean. And it is then, after all that, that David cries out those words we all know created me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. And then he says this. It's so significant, the way that it's all bundled together. He says in verse 11, cast me not away from your presence. See, David totally understood what he deserved. But he also knew what God said. He knew what God had promised. And he, he knew that from him was supposed to come the Messiah. God at any moment, he could have cast David away from his presence. He could have chosen someone else. David knew that. But David pled with God. He pled with him, God, I know what I deserve. This is what I deserve. I did not live up to the law. I broke the entire thing. I have no defense, but don't give me what I deserve. And we know that God still used David. It's because of that heart posture. After that, after that, we find out that David was a man after God's own heart because he followed God closely and he did all that God asked him to do. He had moments of unfaithfulness. But in those moments, he was carried by God's faithfulness. And it was from his seed that the Messiah finally came. It was from David's seed that the mission actually became a reality. God wants to use broken people to carry out his mission. But he does need our faithfulness. He does need our faith. And he knows we aren't going to always do it. But in order to have faith in him, we have to have an aspect of us to realize, say, you know what? I actually need you, God. I actually love you, God. He, he, he uses people who want to be used. 
He uses people who love him. He uses people who care about doing the right thing, even though sometimes they don't do the right thing. And even more than that, he uses people who allow him to do the work of transformation on their lives, who are willing to be the people who he has created them to be, who aren't content just watching God work in our world, but not through us. Because if we're going to impact our city for Jesus, we really, really need to come to a place where we allow the cross to transform us. And that's our prayer for you today, that the cross would transform you.